Conversations. Hello and welcome to another episode of Med Conversations. I'm here with, well, we're here, uh, Scott and Beck, and Scott is going to tell us all about COVID-19. The first time we've done an episode and actually been at risk of acquiring the illness during the recording session. Yeah. As you can see, we also have a new toy. <laughs> this will be used liberally throughout the episode. All right. Um, what are you going to tell us about? How is this all going to work? Well, we held off doing a COVID episode for a long time because like the literature is evolving, everything's on the fly, but we've now two years into being three months away from COVID finishing. So I thought for all the doctors that have just been rostered onto a COVID board, there's some really basic stuff and practical hints that might be really helpful. Um, so that's kind of who we're aiming at today. People who haven't, who've been scrolling down the ABC news feed, but haven't actually been reading up to date or the actual trials. Yeah, and full disclosure, this podcast is mostly just to educate me as a medical registrar who's so far avoided looking after any COVID positive patients. And I'm actually about to be looking after COVID patients in two days time. So I am a genuine student here with very little knowledge and my ignorance will be revealed. So it's a fairly long episode. You might want to listen over this a couple of times. What we're going to be talking about is a case, as always. We'll go through some definitions, some pathophysiology. Scott's going to tell us about transmission, infection prevention, and, of course, vaccines and why you should never get them. We'll be talking about investigations, what to do for management, and uh, mostly lingering on that therapeutics side of things, complications, and a brief shout-out to long COVID. So lots to get through. Um, Scott, do you, want to, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, because it's now the... 22nd of January 2022, so oh, that's yeah. really important. At, at um, 8.01pm, <laughs> things will be different by the time we're finished recording. Exactly. The state of the literature will change. There's a few really important new drugs that you want to know about if you're on a COVID ward, so we'll get started. All right, so our, our patient for this case is actually um, Rahul, the very Rahul who you all know and love. He's always been a big believer that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So in peak pandemic, January 2022, he jetted off to Sydney amid surging case numbers, ready for a weekend of debauchery. After patriotically getting on the beers, almost no sleep and many colourful hijinks, he was ready for the plane home when he experienced that most terrifying of modern symptoms. Hang on. The sniffles. Masking up and avoiding contact with others immediately, he used his trusty on-hand rat test and waited. Positive. He tore at his hair and wailed. Does his saga end here when so many future coronary arteries have never felt his soft metallic embrace? Before med conversations is given a chance for scandal to tear it apart? Mm, keep listening for the answer. But first, <laughs> what is COVID-19? So COVID-19, coronavirus disease 2019 is, as you probably all know by now, is caused by the SARS-CoV-2 or COV-2 virus, previously called the 2019 N-COV or novel coronavirus. Um, and this is a uh, SARS-CoV-2 is an enveloped positive strand RNA virus, which is part of the big coronavirus family. So um, positive strand um means it has RNA that's um, translated into proteins and it uh, is enveloped, so it's got a lipid membrane. Mm -hmm. um, it's in the beta coronavirus subgenus along with SARS-CoV-1, um, which caused the 2002 to 2004 outbreaks. Yeah. Um, its other family members include MERS, Middle Eastern uh, Respiratory Syndrome, 
Uh, and that one is uh, has a really high mortality, about 60 or 70% transmitted from camels. And 15% of the common cold is also caused by beta coronavirus. Is that right? Yeah, there's a few other circulating ones that these coronaviruses that cause some pretty mild symptoms. Yeah, so big spectrum. Yeah. And there's also a lot of different coronaviruses in animals. And this virus was first identified in December in Wuhan in China. Um, and it has pretty similar genomics to the bat coronavirus, also a bit similar to the pangolin. We're not going to get too involved here about the conspiracy, but um, it probably came over from animals pretty recently. Um, and in terms of the structure of the virus, um, a lot of people might know this by now, but it's called corona because it has these spike proteins on its surface. Which on an electron microscope kind of look like a crown and corona comes from the Latin word for crown. That's beautiful. Thank you. I always like a bit of etymology. So All right. <laughs> Please go on. So what else does it look like? So it's got this bilipid membrane we talked about and inside there's four different proteins. There's the spike protein we've already talked about. There's the um, envelope protein, which is also in there. There's the membrane protein and there's a nucleocapsid protein associated with the RNA. So just to labour on this, spike protein, we're going to come back to that because that's an important thing to know about the part of the COVID virus, Virion. Yeah, the spike protein along with the envelope and membrane proteins and the lipid bilayer form this envelope and then inside you've got the nucleocapsid which um, helps form the genome with the RNA stored inside and the virus infects cells by the spike protein binding to ACE2 receptors on human cells and through this complex in, uh, process we won't go into allows viral entry. Um, and most vaccinations and treatments target this spike protein and create antibodies or drugs that work against this spike protein. Mm, okay, so that's why that spike protein is so important. Yeah, and ACE2 receptors are in um, lots of different cells in your body, particularly in the upper respiratory tract, but they're also in the lung and they're in the kidneys, and you might remember ACE because um, you've already heard about ACE inhibitors which were very popular in the early days of coronavirus as a potential treatment, but it didn't really pan out. So here we are. Um, so infections with coronavirus, as you all already know from now, can range from entirely asymptomatic infections to upper respiratory tract infections to severe type 1 respiratory failure and multi-organ failure or acute respiratory distress syndrome causing death. Great. Thanks for that overview. So let's talk a little bit about the epidemiology and mortality rates. Yep, so as of January 2022, we've got 307 million known cases and 5.5 million deaths. And you probably don't need us to discuss this because you probably spent more time scrolling epi than anyone has it before in the last, you know, previous years of their life. The whole world has just learnt what logarithmic and um, <laughs> Reproductive number. Yeah, exactly. All this stuff. Um, but just to give it a bit of a comparison, so in, in 2019, pre-COVID, influenza killed 28,000 people in the US and in 2020, um, COVID killed 380,000 people. So, you know, say 15 times that. So it's pretty serious. Um, the mortality really depends on the study you look at, um, what what percentage number you get. But uh, most studies suggest about kind of one um, up to 5%, depending on what risk factors you have. But in some really high risk groups, like people with solid organ transplants, like lung transplants or kidney transplants or really intense chemo for... Um, uh, hematological malignancies it can be up to 20 or even 40 percent depending on the study mm -hmm. and we'll come back to that a lot as well 
Yeah, which makes it pretty serious, right? Because not many diseases, infectious diseases, actually kill people when you have a hospital to try and help them through the infection. Yeah, I, the comparison that I really like as well is um, H1N1 has a 0.02% mortality rate. So it's 100 times lower than, than COVID-19. So you heard it here first, COVID-19 is a bad thing. All right, Scott, can you tell me about the risk factors for severe disease? Those people who are ending up in ICU and that kind of thing, what, what are we seeing on their past medical history? Yeah, so again, most of these will probably be familiar, but the most important one is age. So older people, particularly over 50 or 60 or 70, are much higher risk of death and severe disease, whereas young people often have mild symptoms. Babies are often asymptomatic or um, very rarely have severe disease or um, uh, death. Um, the next big uh, risk factor is probably obesity. Um, uh, very high um, increased risk of severe complications and death. Um, and then probably uh, people who are immunocompromised or have advanced HIV um, and obviously, you know, the mix of these risk factors will influence things. It's hard to grade them exactly, but uh, particularly people who have solid organ transplants like we talked about or, um, you know, on intensive chemotherapy with primary immune deficiencies. Some other risk factors, Beck, can you think of anything else? Yeah, so some of the ones that I've heard of are uh, the chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease, chronic heart disease, so any of those major organ diseases, uh, people essentially patients with chronic illnesses, hypertension, although that was a little bit uh, less of a risk factor than initially thought. But I think the literature on all of this is very dicey still because it's also new. Liver failure, mental illness, and uh, and of course my area is diabetes and um, and diabetes definitely looks like it's, it's one of the main risk factors. So what happened to Raul next? All right, so three days after the sniffles, all of his symptoms have disappeared. I am God on earth, Rahul tells you. My superhuman immune system must have already cleared the virus so I can jump on the plane tonight in time for dinner with nanny halls. Are his clinical symptoms and infectious period over? No, unless uh, unless it's convenient for him to work, obviously. Then <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely over. But um, we know that the incubation period of COVID, which remember is a time between infection and first documented symptoms, um, it, for kind of alpha and um, the earlier variants, uh, the mean was about four days. It's come right down for Delta and it's probably lower still for Omicron, but it usually tends to be a couple of days, maybe two or three most most commonly. But um, I, I'm just going to put the disclaimer here that we're, we're, this podcast is done at the end of January 2022. There's... Uh, the number of published papers about Omicron, I could probably count on both my hands. So it's a lot of preprints and this is all really preliminary data. So there's a, lot, a bit of speculation here, particularly about the variants. So just keep that in mind. Um, so the really important thing with COVID is you've got this first phase where COVID infects the upper respiratory tracts, the nasal passages and, um, and mouth and things, and you get viral multiplication there. And that usually peaks between day zero and day five. And that's when you've got your peak infectivity. So some studies even showed peak infectivity just before symptoms started. But you've got this period of this really high viral load in your upper respiratory tract and nasal passages and things. And that's when you're most infectious to other people. Yeah. Okay. And that, that's pretty classic for viruses in general, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like the, the symptoms people have are pretty typical of most cold or flu-like symptoms. So The infectivity being early as well? Uh, prior, prior to yeah, that's also symptoms. correct. Yeah, with things like influenza and stuff, it's 
a lot of the infectivities a lot earlier in the illness. Yeah. Okay. So incubation period and then the first phase of this viral multiplication, what kind of symptoms are you expecting to get in that first phase? So most commonly things like cough, runny nose, um, sore throat, fevers, headache, um, anosmia um, or lack of smell, which can also come later. Um, Occasionally you can get less specific symptoms like GI symptoms and in children or old people often they can be really non-specific like delirium or just going off their food and things. I Uh, don't think I would ever know if my child was delirious. I couldn't tell the difference. (laughs) All right and then after that phase in 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 the second phase when does that usually come in? So usually um, t- in, uh, after kind of the first week, you have the second phase where the viral replication um, starts to go into the lower respiratory tract and, um, uh, and the viremia starts to pass. And then you get, um, accompanied by that, the host immune response, um, which drives some of these severe symptoms. And people, um, this is when people get really sick. There's this process of um, uh, inflammation, cytokine release, um, also endothelial endothelial invasion by the COVID virus. There's microvascular inflammation and uh, coagulation, which, which plays a role. And people can become really sick classically with type 1 respiratory failure, so hypoxic respiratory failure, mm. which can progress to acute respiratory distress syndrome. Or they can get multi-organ failure because you've got these ACE2 receptors in lots of your organs, like your kidneys and your liver and things. So people can really have um, severe, you know, um, for example, renal failure requiring dialysis is really common people who go to COVID in ICU, I think it's about 25%. Yeah, and again, we're, we're full of disclaimers here, but but that's probably more reflective of classic Delta um, COVID. So it's it's all a bit of a work in progress knowing what Omicron is doing as well. Yeah, it's thought that Omicron might um, favour the upper respiratory tract a bit more, so it often doesn't cause the severe symptoms. And just a, another disclaimer here that um, not everyone will present the same. This is a really typical pattern that people with COVID will have, but Sometimes people will just get really sick a couple of days in or not really follow this pattern. Mm, mm. Damn non-rule followers. Um, when, do, when do people tend to come to hospital or when do they start getting short of breath? Yeah, so the ED doctors talk about this crash that people often have at kind of days, between days five and day 10 most classically and that's during the second phase when people become really unwell and within a few hours become quite short of breath or hypoxic and become really sick and that's often around the time when people present to hospital because often people aren't too sick throughout the first phase but just to generalize okay and so what about later on what are the what are the kind of complications that you're seeing yeah we'll talk more about this later but i think it's good to briefly bring up now because when you're seeing a patient in ed you should think about is it one of these other things that people are having particularly with if they've got a biphasic illness so we know that clotting and thromboembolism is really common in COVID. AKI, we've talked about, acute kidney injury. Myocarditis and pericarditis are quite common. Mm. And even other um, kinds of clots like myocardial infarction or um, stroke. I think 6% of COVID patients in ICU um, are found to have an ischemic stroke. That is a wild statistic. It's really crazy. Um, and also think about bacterial co-infection, mm. which is often um, studies have shown different numbers. Meta-analysis showed about 3.5% have um, bacterial pneumonia um, at, at presentation um, but um, complications secondary to COVID are quite are quite common and you'll hear about some of these fungal super infections like black mold mucor mm. as, uh, COVID related pulmonary aspergillosis as well okay and so thinking about these means that you're also that's going to inform your treatment as well so important to have these kind of things in the back of your mind when you're seeing the patient in front of you and working out what you're going to give them 
obviously all of this is pretty variable, like you said. So um, people don't always follow this script, but it's good to know. And I hadn't really heard it explained like this before. So it's good to know that it's sort of thinking about it as that incubation period, the upper respiratory tract, viral multiplication, which is those kind of erty symptoms. And then, um, and then following that, it's those um, host immune responses that are actually driving the really severe symptoms and I'm, I'm emphasizing this because this is where the treatments come in and the treatments are mostly targeting that host immune response by giving some immunosuppression. Yeah a lot of immune dampening and that's obviously also associated with some lower respiratory tract viral multiplication but I think it's hard to know what you know I think it's this complex dysfunctional response that's going on and the other thing just to mention is that obviously there's lots of different risks um, Risk factors for who gets severe disease, but it's just random as well. Two people with the exact same demographics and risk factors. One might have severe COVID and one one might be asymptomatic. Um, So um, I thought we'd move on to transmission. So do you know how it's spread mainly, Beck? Uh, Groceries. That's why we have to wash our cereal packets. Mm. Leave them out in the sun for two days to kill the COVID. That's the recommendation. I usually spray them with ivermectin first just to be, <laughs> just to be sure. No, so, so I think this has also been a bit of an evolving story. So my understanding was that now we're calling it airborne, but is it, is it mostly airborne? Is it mostly droplet? So it's spread mainly by droplets. So we've got air, um, infections that spread via the air are put into two groups. So there's droplets and airborne infections. Droplets mean you cough or sneeze. Think of a cannonball. So you kind of sneeze it out or cough it out and it kind of goes up and down and lands on the floor. You know, it can usually go up to a couple of metres. Whereas airborne are much smaller particles that once they're released from you can kind of fizz around, you know, sitting on the little air air vents in the room for up to a few hours. Mm, okay. And so this is where, where things like entire intubation teams getting covid comes into it so it's um, from that airborne transmission and that's why we're all wearing n95 masks now in hospitals yeah because surgical masks don't really protect against airborne infections beck do you know any other airborne infection examples uh, i've heard of one that has the initials tb yeah tuberculosis oh is, okay is yeah the not very yeah. well known mm-hmm. full name um, measles and sometimes disseminated varicella are the three common ones you'll see in the hospital so these little virions fly around or go on their little cannonball trajectory or maybe lands on Beck's groceries and uh, it's a really big dollop of them and it, then she kind of lathers it all over her nose when she goes to blow it or Carol maybe via Zala. Cereal, cereal <laughs> <laughs> yeah, getting right into it. Um, and then it makes contact with their mucosa. So usually um, the nares of the nose or the mouth or um, the eyes. And um, there's no confirmed cases by blood transfusion that it usually makes contact with those cells and then starts to replicate. So a lot of this data is a bit older, but the original household attack rates, so someone who had COVID, the chance that their someone else in their house would have COVID were around 10 to 30%. Um, there's been a whole lot of new variants and new vaccines and changes since then, changes in who's isolating. But... You, if you haven't heard about it already, it's useful to think about uh, that in terms of, I guess, who we call a close contact and ask to isolate and get tested, and also about the basic reproductive number. Do you know what that is, Beck? Yeah, so, so that's the number infected by each case in the non-immune population, 
which sounds like a really difficult thing to measure at the moment given that a lot of our population has been vaccinated. So classic with all of this is there's so many moving parts and any kind of study that's supposedly epi- or that is epidemiological is is fairly fraught because different people are getting vaccinated at different times and and it's an evolving illness and the actual the actual virus itself is changing. So I guess the summary here is who knows it's very contagious and um and that it's mostly droplet spread. Yeah, and it's probably about 3.5 usually, but more for Delta, probably even more for Omicron. Some estimates have it as 8. So very high. I think measles is about up to 20. Mm. It's one of the most infectious diseases that we know about. So back to our friend Rahul, who's uh, just gotten off their plane from Sydney, and he asks, when can I see my grandma? Scott. He's on the receiving end of this message. I'll look after nanny halls. So we'll, we'll talk about this a bit more when we discuss diagnostics because it's actually quite complicated to work out if someone's infective while they have COVID, infectious. But um, usually most, the vast majority of people should be, um, that you're most infective in the first couple of days but up to 10 days from symptoms. Mm. I wouldn't see nanny halls for 14 days from um, my COVID infection but we'll talk about that a bit later. Right, and so a lot of these rules that are in place at the moment about when you can be released back into the wild are mostly determined on the economic potential of um, Yeah, when your boss thinks it'd be most convenient infected. for you to come back. And look, do, most infections do happen early and by seven days you're a lot less infectious, but there can be some trailing infections. So it, it should be a different decision for vulnerable people or if you're not in a non-critical work role. Mm. All right, so, so there's lots of language around COVID and Scott, I just wondered if you can explain some of the things that uh, have been coming up. Can you tell us about variants of concern? What does that mean? Yeah, so SARS-CoV-2 uh, viruses, like all viruses, are always mutating the RNA just by making little mistakes all the time and, and changing. And sometimes they make non-functional viruses and sometimes the variants work better. And whenever a new variant is detected, there's these amazing... You can look online if you want to see it. It's quite interesting, all these lovely pictures and graphs. But every new variant is detected, it's given a lineage, and it gets a number, like B1, B, B.1.1.7, for example, or B117, which is alpha variant. And um, then these are all documented. And when there's some genetic changes that are thought that might affect the things we care about, so transmissibility, how contagious it is, how severe the disease is, how good the virus is at escaping vaccine or natural immunity, Mm. or if there's any diagnostic or therapeutic escape, our therapies don't work or our tests don't work, then it gets a letter from the WHO, a Greek letter. Mm -hmm. And that triggers further research and monitoring. And that's partly to avoid stigma by... Calling it the the Melbourne virus or something, the China flu. All yeah. of the all the stigma is now against the Greeks because they're all Greek <laughs> letters. Yeah. All right. So that's variant of interest, and then variant of concern is just that it was more interesting and more concerning, and then it reaches a threshold, and now we call it a variant of concern. Is that right? Pretty much. So once it's demonstrated to have some of those things we worried about, so demonstrated to have increased transmissibility, you know, displacing all the other virus in it, variants in an area, um, increased virulence, so severity or issues with some of the other things we talked about, like vaccines or natural immunity. Okay. So, so far we've had alpha, beta, gamma, delta and omicron. Um, yeah, they're the current variants of concern. There's been other ones that have come, started you know, bubbling up and then faded away. But um, delta was uh, kind of replaced most of the other coronavirus. Um, for 
from uh, about mid 2021 onwards and from after being detected in November in South Africa Omicron has become the dominant virus worldwide yeah. as of January 2022. So it's just a baby it's 10 weeks old and we have very very little literature about it so that's why all the um, all the disclaimers as we've been talking uh, because a lot of this is based on um, unpublished data. So Rahul um, has some other questions. He actually can't be with us today because he's um, he's coughing in the corner. Um, but uh, his other questions are: I am vaccinated and boosted, and I drink bootleg human stem cells in my smoothie every morning. How did I catch COVID? So this is another. You could do a whole podcast about COVID vaccines. So we're trying to we're going to try and go through it really quick and just give you guys some key pointers. So there's a few different kinds of vaccines. Um, there's the mRNA vaccination, so Pfizer or um, Moderna. And that's this um, really exciting new technology where you have a lipid nanoparticle with mRNA inside it that then um, integrates into the host and causes it to make part of the spike protein. There it is again, spike protein. We mentioned that earlier. Yep, and it develop, helps the host develop antibodies against it to protect against uh, future infection. Usually a two-dose course, usually three weeks apart. Yeah, so this is super cool because it's against the bit of the virus that gets into your cells. And then if you have antibodies against that, it can prevent you becoming infected. So that's the mRNA vaccines. What about uh, AstraZeneca? What type is that? Yeah, that's a live attenuated virus. So there's a modified chimpanzee adenovirus um, that's made to produce spike protein. And Johnson & Johnson also works in a similar way. You might remember that one-shot COVID vaccine that no one got in Australia, but I think a lot of people got in America. Um, it, it worked fairly well, but um, the concern is uh, this very concern. Uh, the concern is this concerning symptom mm-hmm. in April 2020 was noted, where a few people started getting this severe syndrome of disseminated uh, coagula- coagulation with um, cerebral sinus thrombosis and and thrombosis everywhere else and and thrombocytopenia with a very high mortality up to 50 percent. So they, as you probably know, they withheld things for a while. Um, and uh, this syndrome is very rare. It's more common um, in uh, younger people than older people. And there are some treatments, as we've identified it more, the mortalities come down. It's probably about 10 or 20%. But it probably means that AstraZeneca will be uh, very out of fashion mm. in the next year or so, I imagine. But just, just to give that the, its title, so that's called Vaccine-Induced Immune Thrombotic Thrombocytopenia. Or VIT. V-I-T-T. Yeah. Um, to go quickly, uh, the other vaccine which is, seems to never come but always be about to come is Novavax, which is a, a vaccine ag- which is the spike protein with an adjuvant, again, using nanoparticle technology, also known as Nevavax because it's never arrived. <laughs> um, and I, I guess the important thing here is um, most of the trials were done on the fly with changing variants and population immunity and vaccine companies ran a lot of the trials. So... Uh, there's some variation between how they were run. So there's not a lot of direct comparison studies, although I did see one published in Nedgem a few days ago, which uh, had Moderna 40% more effective than Pfizer, which might be big news. I, you know, we'll see if that pans out. Mm. I got Pfizer. Sounds like... Me too. I think yeah. most people in Australia did. <laughs> or they got AstraZeneca. All right. So overall... What's the kind of TLDR on which vaccine to get and how effective they are? 
Yeah. So again, I'm going to give the boring answer of depends, but it really does change. <laughs> I could give you a ton of different percentages just based on all these factors, like how old someone is, how many comorbidities they have, how many weeks it's been since they got their last vaccine, are they boosted, and then what variant it is. So we don't even really have much data for Omicron yet. But to give you guys just some rough numbers, if you haven't already picked these up, um, uh, the early studies with Alpha um, showed a kind of up to 90% efficacy against hospitalization or severe disease by a double dose, a little bit, maybe a little bit lower in AstraZeneca and Pfizer. Um, and then probably to oversimplify the Delta studies, it was probably about 20% lower. There's a bit more infection breakthrough and severe disease breakthrough. Um, and uh, this vaccine immunity peaks at about two to six weeks and then wanes with time. So there was a big Nedgem study recently which showed that um, uh, AstraZeneca was about 67% effective against Delta um, for infection um, at, at its peak. And then by 20 weeks, it was only 44% effective. So you can see it's lost about you know, 30% of its efficacy. And this study showed Pfizer having a 90% efficacy and then uh, at its peak and then dropping to 66% at 20 weeks. And for over 65, the efficacy is probably about 10% lower, again, to overgeneralise. Yeah, okay. But overall, the best vaccine is the one that you can get. So it sounds like they're all effective to varying degrees. It's really hard to nail down the data, uh, but they're all helpful. And I think one of the really important roles for us as clinicians presume everyone listening is a clinician or a wannabe clinician but who knows um but but for all of those of us who are or are soon to be is is the role that we play in our communication with the community and i think vaccine hesitancy as opposed to people who are completely anti-vax where there's often not much room for for discussion but patients with vaccine hesitancy if you can treat them with respect and have um, good evidence-based discussions you can actually change change their mind and, and really save lives yeah, I've seen a lot of people with good reason to be hesitant. You know, they've got maybe a blood clotting disorder and they want to chat with their doctor or their friend had a um, severe side effect or they had a severe side effect. So it's good to just meet people where they are and kind of have discussions. Don't assume that they're totally dogmatic and impossible to convince at the start, but you know, try and kind of convince them over time or give them some more evidence. Um, and just to talk about briefly, Omicron is really early data for how effective our vaccines are. Obviously, it's got a lot of breakthrough infection, as we can tell by the way the, the world has changed in the last kind of two months. But um, uh, early studies, uh, there's, there's a preprint which suggested double-dose Pfizer was about 35% protective against infection. Which is tiny, 35%. Yeah, so probably about half what, what it was before. But that went up to 70% protection with a booster, with, with the Pfizer vaccine. So, you know, if you're boosted, you've still got reasonable protection against infection and the protection against um, hosp um, hospitalization or severe illness and death actually was still retained so it still got over 90 percent efficacy against getting really sick even though you might still get infected so we'll leave that there um, and move on to some more fancy new treatments that have been popping up so what's post-exposure prophylaxis Beck? ah that was a question i had myself <laughs> <laughs> so that's what before you're in, like if you're exposed to someone. So oh, in general, yes, oh, yeah. I can I can answer that question, <laughs> and I will answer that question. Um, so so post exposure prophylaxis is um is where you've had an exposure and you want to make sure that you don't actually develop the infection. 
Um, do we have any agents that can do that for COVID? Well, we did. We had Ronaprev, which is two monoclonal antibodies, Casarivimab and Indevimab, uh, which is already been used a fair bit in Australia and the US and um, you give it to someone when they're exposed like if they're a household contact and then they've got less risk of getting COVID at all however early data suggests that the mutations in Omicron spike protein prevent those um, monoclonal antibodies from binding to it Mm. so it probably doesn't work against Omicron it could Um, be a very challenging wordle if they ever increase the number of letters yeah casarivimab indevimib indevimab yeah, so um, it's sometimes given to people who, if you know they have Delta, which is sometimes hard to tell straight away, but it, if they um, uh, don't have COVID, they're exposed and they're very high risk, it's sometimes given. But we won't spend a lot of time on that. All right, so watch this space, check the literature in a few months' time, we'll see where we're at. Okay, so uh, we've talked a bit about vaccinations and prevention. What about diagnostics? How do you, how do you diagnose this? What's the difference between a PCR, what's a NAT, a RAT, what's all of this? Yeah, so um, I guess first I want to say that the gold standard for making for growing for knowing that someone's infected is actually doing a viral culture. Because remember, viruses infect cells. So in order to make sure that there's infectious virus there, you need to kind of isolate it and then put it into some cell culture and, and grow it there. And in studies, that's often what they do to to make sure that someone's infectious with COVID. Mm. But that's you know pretty labour intensive so it's pretty rarely done outside research yeah so those new interns don't go ordering a viral culture useless <laughs> yeah the lab will just laugh at you mm. um, the main test that's used as most people know by now is um, pcr polymerase chain reaction uh, which is a type of nucleic acid amplification test yeah so i think this is where people get uh, easily confused so nucleic acid amplification test or nat It does rhyme with RAT, but they're very different things. So RAT is a rapid antigen test, um, but but so PCR is a subset of NAT tests. Yeah, it's a way to amplify nucleic acid. Okay. So, and 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 so what kind of what are we doing this on? What kind of specimen? Yeah, so um, PCR works by doing these cycles with a thermocycler, where you um, basically uh, use like a, a a a priming DNA fragment and you just multiply and multiply and multiply. And if there's anything in that sample with that particular strand of DNA, then you'll detect it. Um, And then uh, you'll reach something called a cycle threshold. And that's how many times you had to double effectively the kind of the nucleic acid in that, um, in that sample before you could detect it. Um, So it's very sensitive test because of that. It it picks up a very small amount of virus. Um, However, the studies with COVID have shown really varying sensitivities, even of the PCR, which is our, our best kind of generally accessible test. Um, that sensitivity depends on the timing and the severity. Um, most studies have shown that if you do it right on day zero, when they first become symptomatic, it's about 95% sensitive. But it's pretty good. Which is pretty good. But remembering that this is a very infectious and dangerous disease and there's all these implications for if patients are in hospital or visiting other people, particularly in the early phase of COVID in Australia when we didn't have that much around, that was, we, we weren't happy with it. So at a lot of hospitals, they'd do one test and then do another test a day later. Um, and particularly if, for, if someone presents a bit later in the illness, like um, we talked about the second phase of COVID, if they're kind of day six or day eight, and particularly if they're not super symptomatic, um, sometimes you'll get um, false negatives where um, you won't pick up a small amount of DNA. 
So just just be aware that it's a pretty good test. It's very sensitive, but it's not it's not perfect. And the the learning point is if if it's negative and you really think this is COVID, you can you should probably repeat it twenty four hours later. Mm-hmm. Okay, so not sensitive, but it is very specific. So what that means is if you get a positive test, you have COVID. It's almost definitely so greater than ninety nine percent specificity. Yeah, exactly. So uh, when are, when can you get false positives? When's that most likely? Um, so uh, sometimes if someone's had COVID in the past and they've still got a little bit of viral shedding, because it can because it can pick up these little fragments of DNA, some um, sorry RNA. Sometimes you don't have viable living virus with its whole set of proteins and its capsule and everything, but you might have some little viral fragments that still test positive on the PCR. Um, and uh, so that that's that's one way. Or um, sometimes if people are uh, just maybe too early in their illness, or um, but it, it's it's quite unusual. It's very specific. We're talking ninety nine percent. The other thing I just wanted to mention is you can swab some different sites, like any PCR. You can do different kinds of samples. Um, a meta analysis of different sites showed that throat um, swabbing was about sixty seven percent sensitive. Uh, nasal swabbing was 86% and combined it was 97%. There's been some pretty different numbers thrown around in some of the other studies, but I, I guess the thing to remember is the combined throat, then nose swab is generally the best in what we do in Australia. Um, you don't have to go as high up the nose as we thought initially. There were some studies that showed equivalence for just going. Thank God. <laughs> the number of, I got so many swabs in that time as well and the just samples of my occipital lobe. Just, um, yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay, so that's PCR. Um, tell us about rapid antigen testing. So this is what's um, been used more recently in Australia, but previously in a lot of other places. This doesn't work by nucleic acid amplification. This is a, to test, a rapid antigen test that tests one of the antigens. So it's a lateral flow assay, um, and you get your sample, um, you mix it with something that messes up the, um, uh, the, 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 the virion, and then it flows across um, this membrane, and uh, it, if there's uh, COVID, um, it's the nuclear captured antigen, which you don't need to remember. It, bi- it is there. It binds with the conjugate and you get that little line and that you know that your weekend plans are cancelled. <laughs> so the great thing about this is there's just home kits. They can sell them in the supermarket. They take 15 minutes. You can do them at home. Um, but they are a bit less sensitive. So compared to the PCR, um, if you're symptomatic, it's not as bad. It's probably about... Um, uh, 72% sensitive, but if you're asymptomatic, the sensitivity might be as low as 58%. So, um, it, and that correlates with viral load. So, if you've got a low CT value, a cycle threshold value on your PCR, so you've got really high viral load. So, when you get your PCR, the, the PCR te- machine doesn't need to multiply it many times before it, it bings positive. Mm. Then it's quite sensitive. So if you're super infectious, it's up to ninety-five percent. If your CT value is under twenty-five, which you do not need to remember, but if you're not very infectious, it's lower. So key point here is if it's got a, it's very specific. So if you test positive on your rapid antigen test, that's that's basically a positive. Is probably what our guidelines will be very soon. But if it tests negative, you can't be sure you don't have COVID. So consider getting a PCR or maybe testing again the next day if you're very suspicious. All right, sounds good. Serology is the only other thing to mention. We don't use this a lot in Australia, but sometimes this is used to um, show past infection and in research. Um, they usually, the IG, um, positive IgM is usually around day seven and IgG is another week later. It's also not validated. 
to ch- yeah to check if someone's appropriately vaccinated because all this data is on the fly. We're still learning about COVID. So I just want to talk a little bit about duration of infectivity because this is a bit of a controversial topic at the moment and you're probably getting a lot of mixed messages. We used to isolate for 14 days, but now it's seven or maybe five or oh, 15 minutes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just your work break and then just come back in. So as we talked about, this PCR shows vi- RNA detection shedding, but it might just be an active virus material. So unless you did viral culture in people, you, you don't know you're for sure they're not, not infectious. Know. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we kind of guess by their viral load from their PCR if, if people are infectious. But the important thing to know is in most studies, people with mild or moderate illness, there's, it's very rare to have viral culture positivity beyond about day nine. There are case reports of it being longer and... So 10 days is probably enough for most people not to, uh, the vast majority of people not to be infectious. Okay. However, in some people who have abnormal immune systems, like some people on really high dose chemotherapy, they've actually found viral cultures positive a couple of months afterwards. And often they can, they can shed viral RNA, so they still have a positive RNA PCR on their nose for weeks and weeks, which makes it a really difficult decision that needs to run past the ID team, how you manage you know, hematology patients or oncology patients in their outpatient, you know, chemo centres when if there's, you know, do you wait till they're PCR negative even though they've probably just got a little bit of dead virus or yeah, do you so wait hard. months? It's really difficult. So hard and the stakes are so high. But at the moment, so again, as of the 22nd of January, our guidelines are for seven days of hard isolation. Um, interestingly, fomites, so that's surfaces and things, um, there's... The thinking at the moment is that the virus hangs around for three days on many surfaces. So I imagine if you're staying in an Airbnb for your infectious period and you finish your isolation on a Saturday, um, it's not going to be until the Tuesday that, that people can um, feel comfortable touching the surfaces, I, I guess. Yeah, and that's another controversial area that we really don't understand that well because some studies that looked at um, virus on surfaces showed that a lot of them weren't culture positive. So even though there was a little bit of virus there, it wasn't infectious and other ones did and you know, it's, it's definitely not a, a major method of spreading. But, you know, uh, I think remember that while you're most infectious in those first couple of days, and most people are probably not infectious after seven days, until 10 days or even 14, you should just be aware that you could be, there's a small chance you could be infectious. So you should definitely wear a mask and take precautions, particularly around vulnerable people. I love that we're, we're now presenting this as, as if you, the listener, are the one with the virus because probably <laughs> <laughs> most of you are going to get it, sorry. Um, but, true. but also, obviously, uh, in terms of your patients, it's really important, particularly if you're new to the hospital system for our new interns starting, um, you're not going to be making any of these decisions. You need to talk to your, your hospital infection prevention service uh, and they can give advice on this, both with your patients and, and yourself and your household contacts. Yeah. And, and, and the duration of infectivity is shorter if you have milder disease and also if you're younger and healthier. So patient comes in with COVID. Um, Beck, what do you order? What tests? All right. So now we're talking about in the hospital setting, somebody's present, I mean, hospital or GP, somebody thinks that they've got COVID, they've done a positive at-home test. So I do some lung imaging. Uh, obviously, all of this is yeah, after. Ah, uh, yes, I guess uh, this, this is showing. This is showing my hospital. You tell bias. them to stay away from your practice and not come <laughs> in with their COVID. Yeah. Um. So 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 first of all, you would you need to assess the patient, and we're doing this a little bit out of the order we would usually do it in. 
Um, but following your clinical assessment, the kind of tests that you'll be investigations you can do in COVID are some lung imaging, so chest X-ray. You might consider a CT um, and and even a CTPA if you're suspicious for a pulmonary embolism. So what you're seeing on on chest imaging is usually diffuse alveolar or ground glass changes and. It tends to be sort of a bit patchy all over the place, but peripheral, mid-zone and lower zone predominant most of the time. Interestingly, uh, these changes stick around. So I've had patients who've been admitted with gout, cellulitis, whatever, and and weeks and weeks after their COVID infection, their chest X-ray still looks horrendous, but they have no respiratory symptoms and no residual disease. It's also the case in in consolidative bacterial pneumonia, but but an, an important point here to remember that these changes do persist. So that's chest imaging. Otherwise, um, I don't know, do you do some blood tests? Yeah, so if a patient came into hospital, it's worth doing some bloods. You should check. Uh, the most common findings on a um, full blood examination are low platelets, a lymphopenia, it, which is in 90%, very sensitive sign for COVID. If they don't have a lymphopenia, it's much less likely that they've got COVID. Mm. Um, and sometimes a neutrophilia with higher neutrophils. Um, an AKI, kidney injury, is also very common in COVID. Um, check that UEC. Yep, check that UEC. Do an LFT and you're looking for mild derangements, um, especially the AST, most commonly affected. And some of these will uh, kind of influence what therapies we choose. And then we usually do a whole set of inflammation markers like um, COAGs, D-dimer, LDH, CRP and ESR. And some of that also helps guide some of our therapies. And they can also, they've also been linked to prognosis, so chance of um, severe disease or death. Okay, would you do a sputum MCS? Yeah, if I could, I definitely would um, do a sputum MCS to check if they've got um, if they're producing sputum. Um, I would if uh, usually at our hospital we send them for an influenza um, uh, PCR when they get their COVID swab as well mm-hmm. when they present, and you'd consider some of the atypical pneumonia, serology, and uh, antigens like Legionella urinary antigen and strep urinary antigen mm-hmm. because and you do serology as well, would you? Uh, I would not, not not normally. Okay. No, I wouldn't normally do it, but you see maybe a mix of what people do. Mm, okay. And with ser- serology, it's important to remember that you, you're wanting to do acute and convalescent. So you'd follow that up uh, a little bit down the track as well. All right. So that's imaging and bloods and urine and sputum. Uh, bedside test, ECG also important because some of the complications, which we can talk about later, are um, pericarditis, Rarely myocardial infarction. We've mentioned PE, so looking for that right heart strain that might be a hint towards that. Okay, so now just going back to Rahul, I'm sure everyone's been on tenderhooks wondering what happened to him. So he had a few more days of fatigue and low fevers. Then by day nine, he was asymptomatic and managed to cross back across the borders. I think we've been inconsistent with the story. So maybe maybe his nan was still in Sydney. Uh, anyway, so he's come back and he's fine. So everyone can everyone rejoice. Rahul is okay. And the last thing he needs is more attention to feed his massive ego. So we're going to quit this case here and introduce you to Amy. So before we do, this is kind of a two-episode, double-episode podcast. We were going to split it in two. And then we thought because Omicron and the COVID world moved so quickly that people might be kind of rostered to deal with the Omicron stuff next week. So... We thought we would just smash it out. So if you do want to have a break, you know, go play some mini golf. I can't even things. think of anything else. I yeah. think mini golf is really the Forgotten the what hobbies option. are since COVID yeah. started. <laughs> Whatever it is that you do. 
Um, the and then we'll the catch medicals. you afterwards. I guess you can yeah. uh, you can really press pause whenever you want. This is a recommended pause break. And we're back. <laughs> All right, that was a success. That was so exciting. All right, Amy. Um, sorry, everyone. That was a the sharp intake of breath was when our computer screen just uh, just blanked off, but it's back again. So, you are a rheumatology registrar who has been the sole non-infected survivor of a team breakfast. And as a reward, you have been conscripted to extra shifts in the emergency department to deal with a surge of COVID presentations. Amy turns up in your ED. She's unvaccinated and defiantly unmasked and mumbles incomprehensively about the pandemic as the AV team wheel her in. She's vague and resistant to history taking. It describes over a week of symptoms that improved before today. But today, she felt febrile with nausea and progressively more dyspneic until she reluctantly called the ambulance. So, Scott, what's the approach to a patient like this? So, I guess the first question is, do you need to go and see them? That's always the first question. <laughs> <laughs> do you have an intern? Maybe like a nurse? Like is maybe there a one ward of, clerk? Maybe one of your family members is in the hospital and owes you a favour, you know. <laughs> Can you get out of this job, basically? <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess the first thing is, the first principle in infection prevention is re- reducing the source of infection. So with COVID-positive patients, um, we should reduce unnecessary patient contacts, patient examination and history. But I, I think every patient who comes into hospital should get, at least get one proper assessment, even if it seems like really obvious COVID with a clinician, just to make sure that it is COVID and um, they haven't missed something else. And that comes to my second principle of COVID, which is don't get COVID brain, turn your medical brain off and miss something else because it could be something else that's not COVID or they could have COVID and something else. So Yeah, so key, so important. Yeah, that's what your medical training's for. Okay, so you've got to take a history, whether you're doing it over the phone and how do do you tend to do that? Is that literally with the patient's own mobile phone and you stand outside and and talk to them again or, or are you sort of just using the history of the emergency physician who saw them before you if you're not going to expose yourself again? Uh, it depends how much I trust the history. I guess as you get experience, you'll kind of make that judgment, but mm. how thorough it is and how recent it was and how sick the patient is or high risk. Yeah, but I guess if you are taking a history, what are the key details you're looking for? So there's some really key d- details. COVID is not hard to think about and manage. So first thing is onset of symptoms. And that'll help you predict where in their most typical kind of symptom course they are and if they're likely to t- deteriorate soon. Okay, so when? When. What's, what's the first onset? And just remember, just rounds the earliest date they give you. doesn't matter about when they called Uncle Bill, just when did their sore throat start? Um, and then you just ask them about what symptoms do they have, you know, fevers, dyspnea, chest pain. Things like sputum might be helpful for thinking about if they've got a pneumonia or if they're eating and drinking might give you a clue to their fluid status. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the what? The what? And, and then, then the why. Why are they here right now? Why yeah. do they come to emergency? Um, so yeah, that's. I think that explains itself. Did they call an ambulance or did their, you know, psychic tell them to come in? Uh, and what? And then what was the first date of their first positive test? And whether that's a rat or a PCR probably isn't that important. But mm-hmm. what's that first date? Um, then their vaccination status, really important. What vaccines, when was the last dose given? 
and have they had COVID before? Okay. So they're the questions you're asking about them. And what about their social contacts? Yeah, it's, it's not that important how they got COVID if, if once the PCR is already back. They've got, if they've got COVID now, it is what it is. But the COVID status of their household members and who they live with is really important for knowing when you can safely discharge the patient. Like, do they have multiple bathrooms? Is it a big house? Can they safely isolate from each other? Um, if, uh, if one of the people in the house still isn't positive, but if everyone's positive, it's a lot easier. They can just have a COVID party together if they're safe enough to go home. Okay, great. And then also going back to what you said earlier, not, not getting COVID brain and forgetting about other things. You need to take a thorough history asking if they've got anything else going on. And that's when they might mention that they've got a complete, uh, you know, loss of power on their whole left side. Yeah, have they had a stroke? But if, if it's really, you know, garden variety COVID, ask a few screening questions. We don't need to know about their uncle who maybe had an autoimmune you know, disease maybe, or maybe yeah. we do. I'm getting a look. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. That wasn't a look. That wasn't a look. Um, All right. And then you're going to ask about their past medical history, as you always would. Um, and and obviously, that's just part of routine history taking. But you're honing in on, do they have obesity? Do they have heart-lung disease? Do, how, how are their kidneys at baseline? And of course, are they immunosuppressed? Yeah. And then other really important thing is regular meds. It's probably the most important thing when you admit any patient. Make sure they're not on any meds that, if missed, could cause real problems like diabetes medications, COPD medications, Parkinson's medications. If they need substance with, um, if they're a substance user and need withdrawal medications or alcohol withdrawal, that's that stuff's really important. Yeah, and so for the interns, um, particularly those who are just starting, so these are things that sometimes do get missed by the admitting registrars, even if they've listened to this podcast. Um, so what you need to pick up on is if there is a history of alcohol use, you need to chart their alcohol withdrawal scale with diazepam. If they're on, um, if they have diabetes, they should be started on an insulin sliding scale, whether or not they're given steroids. And, and also if they're on steroids chronically, that should be stress dosed if they're in hospital unwell. Yep. So that's past medical history, medications, social history, the usual, um, but as we said, looking at, at smoking drugs and alcohol as well. And really you're thinking, do they have COVID? How bad is it? Do they also have something else or do they have something else and actually is it not COVID? Yeah. That's history. What about exams, Scott? What are we, what are we doing on exam? So are again, we doing the exam? <laughs> So uh, I think the hospital policies change a hundred times based on where we are in the pandemic and how much kind of baseline risk versus the risk with sitting in front of a COVID patient. But as a general principle, try to minimise too much unnecessary examinations. But I think every patient that comes in the hospital needs at least, uh, you know, like a moderate exam at least once when they come in. Uh, and again, if they get a lot sicker. So um, so what's um, uh, Amy, what, what, are her, what are her findings on examination and what does that tell you, Beck? All right, so Amy's tachycardic with a heart rate of 110, tachypneic, respiratory rate is 28, and at the moment her oxygen saturations are 88% on room air. She's put onto three litres via nasal prongs and the oxygen goes up to 94%. Blood pressure is 105 on 60, so slightly low. Yeah, so she's got moderately increased worker breathing, short sentences, but she's orientated to time and place and premiere. Dictator Dan, for all the Victorians out there. Um, so this sounds like a pretty typical kind of COVID exam. Um, and when you listen to her chest, um, she's got crepitations. You note there's no wheeze, which is an important thing to rule out, and there's good air entry, so no pneumothorax, which is rare but can happen in COVID. 
Um, you have a quick listen to her heart, no obvious murmurs, and most importantly, you check her volume status mm. um, to make if she's got an obvious high JVP or a lot of peripheral edema, because that's one way we can really hurt patients who, when we give them too much IV fluid in the ED. Okay, so Amy doesn't, you can't see her JVP unless she's lying fairly flat and she doesn't have any peripheral edema. Yeah, and I guess here, you know, um, do a quick exam, a directed exam, but again, don't sit there kind of looking at the back of her throat for about three minutes while you try and, you know, grade her uvula or whatever, unless you're an anaesthetist, because obviously there is some risk if she's got COVID. Um, so how did, Beck, do you know how you think about COVID? What are kind of the broad symptoms? So I, I know, I know broadly that you're looking at how, how severe it is because that's going to help guide what treatment you give her. So can you, can you give us a bit of a rundown of, of what these different strata are? Sure. So we know that there's people who are asymptomatic and sometimes even really old or crumbly people can be asymptomatic. Um, then there's people with mild or moderate COVID. Some of the guidelines vary in what word they use, but I think of mild as symptomatic but not hypoxic. Um, and moderate, so these are the people who they've got COVID, but they can just go home and isolate and try not to infect anyone else, but don't need to come into hospital because they're, they're not hypoxic. And hypoxia is the real number one way that we grade severity of COVID. If you forget mm-hmm. everything else, if you're just looking at a COVID patient, you just look at how much oxygen they need. Yeah, okay. So... Um, Moderate um, severity COVID or people who need oxygen. Um, uh, these are the people who usually need to come into hospital and that's usually up to requiring any oxygen on nasal prongs, usually get up to kind of four or five litres. Um, then we look at people with severe COVID. So they're the ones who um, need high flow oxygen or um, sometimes non-invasive ventilation. You know, those really heavy masks that people wear that also provide a bit of pressure support to their lungs. Mm-hmm. And then we've got people who are critical. So usually people who are intubated or uh, with multi-organ dysfunction like severe renal impairment or liver dysfunction and things. Yeah, okay. And So these, these categories aren't mutually exclusive. So the patient can come in with mild disease and then um, their trajectory might be one of jumping through all those categories until they're critically ill. So keeping an eye on people and, and re-stratifying as you continue to assess them with time. Yeah, and just be aware that, you know, people can come in around day six or day eight or day 10 and be pretty well and then deteriorate really quickly over a few hours. So get that ICU referral in early if you think they've got severe COVID and are needing a lot of oxygen support. So, Beck, um, pretend, so you're, well, you are this rheumatology reg. All you've, se- all you've done is put patients on biologics for many years and kind of diagnose weird and wonderful disorders, but you haven't done any COVID. You're now calling your um, COVID consultant to... Who's an orthopaedic surgeon, probably. Who's <laughs> <laughs> an orthopaedic surgeon with an up-to-date subscription and uh, to get some of the treatment plans. So how would you summarise it if you had to um, summarise Amy? Yeah, yeah. So I think this, this is really important. Um, so in I would say I have a 45-year-old unvaccinated female who's presented with moderate COVID. She's currently day eight of symptoms. She's hypoxic at 85% on room air, now requiring three litres of supplemental oxygen to maintain at 94%. On examination, she has a respiratory rate of 28. She's afebrile and has moderately increased work of breathing. Bloods show a lymphocytopenia and mild creatinine rise. Chest x-ray shows patchy bilateral lower zone changes consistent with COVID pneumonia. And we've started her on dexamethasone. And then he'll say... What's her knee X-ray show? <laughs> so I, I guess also this is this is more the typical COVID patient with 
Delta, but from what I've heard, and as as Scott said, I haven't actually looked after patients with COVID, uh, acute COVID yet. Um, but it sounds like most of the patients who are coming in now with Omicron are coming in with something else that's been exacerbated by Omicron, and we're seeing a lot less of that sort of pneumonitis picture. Yeah, I think there's a, probably a higher proportion of people who are really old and or like sick at baseline, and then have got Omicron that's kind of toppled them over. But you're probably still maybe getting like forty or you know. Still, a big proportion are coming in with that classical COVID, you right, know, type okay. one respiratory failure, hypoxia. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of issues with some of those other patients as well. Um, and if you want to save time and not annoy the very grumpy COVID consultant, you can leave out the her um, the patient's theories about where they got their infection from, because it's probably not that important in the acute phase. It's more important once you're discharging them to know about their household. So now we've got a treat for everyone or a treat for anyone who's been a doctor for a couple of years and remembers when there was no therapies for COVID and we were just trying random things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Um, now there's lots of wonderful therapies. We're really lucky. It's incredible how fast it's involved and is interesting in itself. Um, but obviously this evolves rapidly. So this is done in January 2022 and um, you'll want to check up some guidelines uh, if you look up at, you know, if this is in the following year or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, uh, at that, uh, Scott, you were just telling me about an amazing website, um, covid19evidence.net.au. And on that website, there's lots of clinical flow charts, and it sounds like that's a fairly reputable source of extremely up-to-date information. Interestingly, up-to-date uh, is not up-to-date. Uh, so we were just having <laughs> a look at the, the therapeutics article there on up-to-date, and it was actually last updated in November, and things move really fast. So, um, yeah. Follow your hospital policies would be the main thing I would say here. And if you're panicking and you want like a crash course in COVID, I probably you could start with up to date for a bit of a read and just remember that it probably doesn't have all the stuff from the last couple of months. So there's this COVID living evidence guideline, which is really exciting. They've created this new database, which just feeds data from new studies into these kind of meta-analyses in, in real time or semi-real time. And it has all these different recommendations. It's an Australian task force that's created it. Um, but also, obviously, your hospital uh, will have a protocol for people with COVID you can read. So as, as, as we talked about previously, there's this vast kind of, you know, uh, just swamp of like low quality evidence. And, and a lot of these data has changed over time. Variants have changed. Standards of care have changed. Vaccinations so, have changed. Vaccinations have changed. Variants, uh, different ways to measure outcomes. A lot of studies are only at 28 days. So we don't know the long term outcomes, a lot of these treatments. And also acknowledging that there's a lot of kind of biases and problems with the um, drug company control and if anyone's interested, Bad Pharma by Ben Goldacre is a really good discussion of that stuff. Mm. So it's all a bit of science on the fly and sometimes not even that scientific science. But tell us, what's the standard of care? How, how are we treating your, your bog standard COVID patient who comes in? So before we talk about all the exciting new um, therapies we've got, let's just start with the basics. So first, do COVID patients need antibiotics? This is surprisingly controversial and different hospitals and different guidelines say different things. Um, if you're, um, as we said, there's, you know, 3.5% of COVID patients at presentation will have pneumonia. Um, later in their illness, a, a much higher proportion will get a bacterial pneumonia and some of them will even get a fungal pneumonia. So it's a common complication. And um, usually we give antibiotics if we're, you know, they've got a lot of sputum or um, they're, um, got risk factors or they're really sick but if you're in ED and you're not really sure no one will yell at you for giving them a dose of keftriaxone and maybe some azithromycin 
if they're pretty sick. Obviously, if they're not very sick, then they don't need any antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, we've already mentioned the investigations that you would send off. What about oxygen? So oxygen support is the most important part of COVID care. And that's why, you know, um, our ICU colleagues are probably the most important in saving people. Um, and it's important that if patients are deteriorating, you refer them really quickly as a non-intensive care doctor. Um, I've got, um, if you've never used a high flow oxygen machine, um, it can be a bit confusing. Basically, it's a machine which flows, uh, uh, kind of has oxygen come through it and mixes it. Um, and you can adjust the oxygen at the wall. And then you can adjust the flow rate of air as well. And it will mix those two things. And it will, if you just click the only button on it, or the main button on it, it'll tell you what the FiO2 or fraction of inspired oxygen is. And it will also tell you how much litres of flow and the idea is that you're adjusting the flow to give the person a bit of pressure support. So if they've um, got a high respiratory rate, you can adjust the flow up to help with that. And if they're hypoxic, you adjust up the oxygen on the wall. And most ward oxygen meters go up to 15 litres. But as my um, uh, ICU fellow friend told me today, uh, the numbers to worry about is if they're needing an FiO2 over 40% or a flow over 40, then you should consider. You should definitely chat with ICU and and have them keep an eye on this patient because they might need further support. Mm. So if you're an intern, uh, the the relevant thing here is probably just inscribing. So if you want to write down what oxygen somebody's on, you want to have something litres and something percent. And if you just press actually any button on the high flow machine, that information will come up. Yeah. All yep. right. So, so that's oxygen. We've talked about antibiotics, but going back to another non-COVID specific medication, we've really got to make sure we've got these patients on prophylactic enoxaparin, so VTE prophylaxis, because they're very high risk of clots. And we're also keeping an eye on them for any other complications. Uh, so seeing if, if any symptoms or signs of PE are evolving, watching their bloods, making sure they don't develop an AKI or a deranged LFTs and, and watching their fluid status, as Scott said earlier, Make sure that they're not going into pulmonary edema. Yeah, and just don't miss that obvious stuff. So don't forget they've got, you know, they're a complex medical patient just because they've got COVID. So, you know, diabetes, steroids, Parkinson's disease, bronchodilators, withdrawal stuff, don't forget. Okay. All right, tell us the juicy stuff. I want to know the MABs, the MIBs, the LIBs. What have we got? <laughs> so um, perhaps if we start off with those therapies that prevent severe disease yeah so really important new one that's only kind of come to australia in probably early december or november so um you, you might not know about it if you haven't been checking the literature more than you've just been checking the abc news feed is sotrovimab so this is a monoclonal antibody which is against the spike protein again such a famous protein yeah really important and um it's actually luckily maintains efficacy against omicron although it needed a slightly at a slightly lower, um, uh, uh, it, it didn't bind quite as well, but it, it maintained its efficacy, which is really good in the absence of studies that we have as of January 2022. Mm. Okay, so who gets map? So patients who are high risk, right? Because this is we give them this to patients early when they're not on oxygen. You can't be on oxygen and get it usually. And it has to be within five days of symptom onset. So we're trying to target this virus in their high viremia phase in this first phase when they've got the upper respiratory tract infection and the high virus, but right. haven't yet so developed severe disease. so you're going back to what you were telling us earlier about these different phases. So this is in the early bit to prevent the severity of that real immune storm bit that happens in the second phase. Yeah, and in, a, in the only trial of this drug, 
it showed an 85% relative risk reduction in hospitalization or severe disease. So 1% versus 7%, which is pretty impressive, obviously early days. Mm. But we, um, there's, uh, most hospitals in Australia are developing kind of triaging protocols as to who can get this wonderful drug um, and who's based on how high their risk of COVID is. So usually it's unvaccinated people who are a bit older with some risk factors, often over, over 50 or 40 with risk factors and unvaccinated or immunocompromised patients with any vaccination status, so a lung transplant or a person on cancer, with cancer. Mm, okay, and is this IV or a tablet? So it's an form? IV I infusion. Mean, it's given one off. Mm-hmm. And so some people come in, some sotrovimab, like Monash has a sotrovimab clinic in Melbourne, for example. People come in, get their infusion, monitored for a couple of hours and then go home. Oh, okay, so not necessarily inpatients. Right, okay. Yeah, exactly. Great. And is there anything else you can give in this same kind of st- setting? So Ronaprieve that we talked about before is has a study which showed it was 70% effective in reducing hospitality and death when you give it early in the first seven days. Hospitality. It makes them really inhospitable. <laughs> they just get really, really, they just yeah. get really rude. <laughs> yeah, make you kick them out and then they die. So it's their fault. <laughs> yeah. um, but as we talked about before, it doesn't seem to work against Omicron in all the in vitro studies, uh, the early studies. So it's probably on the way out. So don't worry about memorizing how to say casarivimab, imdevimab really quickly like I can. Mm, can I get away with not learning how to say bam, lam, min, nivimab? Yep, you probably also can. That's another monoclonal antibody against the spike protein, which was used a lot um, in the US, but it also doesn't seem to have activity against Omicron probably on the way out. So I hope we've successfully filled everyone's brains with some medications you don't need to know. All right. Uh, what about budesonide? That's um, that's pretty inexpensive and there's probably not any heavy lifting pharmaceutical companies who are going to be pushing this one. So Scott, can you fly the flag for budesonide? So I'll fly the flag in the UK. Um, the principal trial, which is an open label randomised control trial, um, enrolled people who were high risk for progression to severe COVID. So um, anyone over 65 or over 50 with risk factors, and most at, at that time, almost no one was vaccinated, and it um, had it. They had an odds ratio of hospitalization or death of um, 0.75, so you know 25 percent less, mm. and symptom duration reduced by three days. Um, unfortunately, as Beck said, this is a generic medication which is widely available, and pharmaceutical companies can't make tens of billions of dollars out of it. So. It's been slow on the uptake, actually, which is interesting, given yeah, so that probably half the people in population qualify for it. A little bit of cynicism here, but um, but but I guess watch this space in case anyone does do any further studies. Yeah. What about hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin? Yeah. So while we're feeling superior about ourselves, fake news. <laughs> fake news. Hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. All the all the randomized controlled trials have not found effects. There's some other really poor data that maybe showed some effects and there were some, you know, we were studying it early on because there was lab studies which suggested it might work, but bottom line is it doesn't work. Mm. Ivermectin also doesn't work um, despite some lab suggestion that it might. And there's uh, there was this very um, scandalous preprint from a Dr. Elgazar, which was found to have manipulated data, which was kind of the key study that made it, started making it popular. Absolutely terrible. There... There was also some mixed results for the use of convalescent plasma, but that's also not recommended. Not currently recommended, yep. All right, so what, what should we be using? So it's a pain in the bum to give everyone a 
IV infusion that you have to monitor them for. So there's another drug on the way, which has not yet arrived in Australia, but will probably be very soon, big, big, very soon, called Paxlovid, P-A-X-L-O-V-I-D, which is ritonavir-boosted nermatrelvir, so Paxlovid. And this is a combination of a protease inhibitor combined with ritonavir. Mm, so what's ritonavir? So ritonavir is a drug we use um, in HIV, and it affects um, CY, it's a CYP inhibitor against a couple of the pathways. So it slows metabolism of the other drug. So it helps you give it less often and uh, maintain higher serum concentrations for longer. Changes the half-life. Mm. So there's one, um, there's a trial in people who are high risk. And this one showed an 89% reduction in symptoms in people within five days from symptom onset who got this drug to, um, early in their COVID illness to try and prevent severe disease. And because it's not targeting the spike protein, it actually retains similar activity against Omicron and Delta in lab studies. So remember, this is obviously a new area. Um, another one which is probably on the way is called molnupiravir, which is a, um, an antiviral which causes um, hypermutation of the RNA and catastrophic errors while the virus is replicating its RNA. And they're also tablets, but not yet here. So no responsibility to learn about it yet. Okay, so just to just to summarise that, because there was a lot of syllables there, post-exposure prophylaxis, we're unlearning Ronoprev because it doesn't work for Omicron, but maybe there might be something else in that category later. So keep the category, but delete the drug from your mind. Mild COVID, uh, patients with mild COVID pr- to try and prevent disease, our options are sotrovimab, maybe budesonide, previously Ronoprev, but again, not so good in Omicron. And on its way is probably Paxlovid, ritonavir-boosted nermatrelvir. Yeah. So sotrovimab and budesonide are the two to remember for now. All right. So going back again to Amy. So Amy asked you if there are any natural medications she could have like turmeric or organic hydroxychloroquine. Or failing that, and apparently this has been asked before, are there any experimental treatments that don't have any evidence yet but are worth a shot? She says that she's been taking ivermectin orally, intranasally and intrarectally, so she's very surprised that she's had breakthrough critical illness according to the guidelines of the um, the FLCCA, which is... Frontline Critical Care Consortium... Against COVID. Against COVID, something Association. like that. Association. <laughs> yep, have a Google, it's very funny. Um, and worrying. <laughs> and concerning. Okay, so what do you, what do you think? What, what can we give... What can we give Amy? She's now day seven. She's looking like she's got pretty severe disease. She's on oxygen. Yeah, so as we talked about before, she's day seven. So um, she's out of the window for most of the severity, uh, most of those medications that prevent severe COVID. Okay, so she can't have citromimab, citromimab. Only up to day five. And she's also already on oxygen. So Mm. that also would independently disqualify her from that. Um, and unless she had undisclosed comorbidities, you know, she's in her, only in her early 30s, she wouldn't have been a candidate anyway for citrovimab probably. She could have had some um, budesonide. Um, but she does qualify for some of the moderate to severe COVID treatments that we'll start talking about now. All right. So first one I am very familiar with, dexamethasone. So tell us about that. How do we give it? Why do we give it? Yeah, so dexamethasone is a real workhorse of COVID. This was the most exciting early trial that came out for our first therapy. Everyone was very excited about it. Generic medication, widely available. Um, And in people who require oxygen, it showed a really significant reduction 
um, in mortality. There was mm. an, um, the recovery trial. The recovery the trial, um, really important trial. Um, and uh, so in people who require oxygen or on non-invasive ventilation, there was an 18% reduction in mortality at 28 days. And in people who were intubated or required ECMO, there was a 36% reduction in mortality. So 29% to 41%. So in August 2020, everyone was, you know, very excited about this. And it's still the real workhorse of COVID. So if you're going to remember one um, early medication to give straight away, I think dexamethasone for anyone on oxygen. Mm, um, okay. The key point, learning point here is that if you go and have a read of the trial, which is probably the most important one to date in COVID, you'll find that um, people who were not on any oxygen actually had no benefit and there was a, a trend towards increased mortality with a um, relative risk of 1.19. And if you're a nerd like me and looked at the um, supplementary indexes, you would have also found that uh, the secondary analysis, it looked like the patients who were more than seven days had a relative risk of um, 0.69 of death. But if you looked at the patients who were day seven or less, uh, there was no effect. It was 1.01. So it, maybe we're also picking up a bit of this signal where in the second inflammatory low respiratory tract phase of COVID is when we want this, these immunosuppressive drugs. And in the early phase, we, we actually don't want to give them. Mm. So really important, if they're not on oxygen, don't give them dexamethasone. If they are on oxygen, then you should give everyone dexamethasone. That's the one not to forget. Yeah. Okay. Six milligrams. Okay, uh, what about remdesivir? Where does that come in? Yeah, so this one's a bit more controversial. It came out um, really early. It's an intravenous drug um, given um, daily for five days or occasionally up to 10. It, it's an antiviral that works by inhibiting RNA polymerase by acting as a nucleoside analogue and kind of getting clogged up in the machinery and stalling RNA replication. Um, the early study, the, the really key one that was first done, um, showed a faster recovery, 12 versus 17 days, and um, uh, but a non-significant difference in 29-day mortality. It has a ratio of 0.73. Um, but there was much more benefit among the, the group subgroup just on low-flow oxygen rather than intubated or um, no oxygen at all. Mm -hmm. So the further... Um, open-label, randomized controlled trials and meta-analysis have actually shown a fluctuating, um, a lack of um, significant efficacy. So the Solidarity trial was an open-label, randomized controlled trial, which showed no difference in 28-day mortality. Um, but there was a slight positive trend in the subgroup on low-flow oxygen. And a big meta-analysis um, also found that remdesivir did not reduce mortality um, or reduce need for mechanical ventilation, although, the, you know, Odds ratio was 0.9, so maybe there's a small effect. Mm, but not without side effects. So it can give you acute kidney injury, hepatotoxicity, bradycardia. Yeah, so it's not a um, totally non-toxic drug. So, I mean, you'll probably follow um, different clinicians have different feelings about remdesivir. Um, it's probably useful, um, really useful in a group that's um, uh, on low-flow oxygen, um, really high risk, where you've caught them early in their illness. So ideally before day seven, Maybe they've like peaked quite early, up to maximum about 10 days um, when you're catching that viremia phase and the really high viral load. Um, and maybe it's not doing very much when we give it once that viremia starts resolving, the virus in the blood starts going down. But um, probably uh, chat with you know your local infection team or check your local protocols to see what you're doing with remdesivir at the moment. It's also probably pretty good in immunocompromised people who might have a much higher and more prolonged viral load mm, okay so remdesivir antiviral agent we're not entirely sure 
how useful it is, but the best role for it is for patients who are on low-flow oxygen and refer to your local guidelines. Usually, yeah, a lot of doctors would probably give it if there's no contraindications like GFR below 30 or um, uh, quite raised um, uh, LFTs. Um, but, yeah, I'd definitely um, maybe have a chat with it with your, with your consultant. Yeah, for, for all of these things. <laughs> All right, severe COVID. Uh, so this is patients who are on high flow or what, intubated? Um, so uh, usually intubated is critical. Severe COVID, oh, I kind of think of that, as sorry. high flow, although mm. some guidelines call anyone on oxygen severe. But I think of it as a separate category because we love giving them another drug that's a bit more exciting. I'll talk about it more positively, baricitinib. Um, so this is, after DEX, probably the most important drug to know about. So this is a JAK1 and JAK2 inhibitor. It's just a tablet. You can give it um, BD for up to 10 days or usually you stop it on discharge. And this Cove Barrier study, which was in hospitalised patients who weren't intubated with a CRP over 65, um, showing that they had inflammation. And um, 90% of these patients were on steroids. So we know that they already had the steroids and maybe they benefit from further immunosuppression. And the overall benefit in 60-day all-cause mortality uh was um was there um and <laughs> <laughs> that was very unclear but um basically the low flow oxygen group um weren't didn't have a significant benefit the hazard ratio of death at 60 days was 0.7 but it crossed it crossed one with a confidence interval mm. and the, but the high flow niv group had a hazard ratio of death of 0.58 so uh, you know a 42 percent um bonus in uh chance of death so a pretty good effect um, there are some contraindications. Patients usually with lymphocytes below 0.2, which can happen a fair bit in COVID because most people have low lymphocytes. or And most of the studies also included people with um, deranged LFTs above one and a half times the upper limit of normal. Um, people can get a headache, um, nasopharyngitis, uh, they can get LFT derangement, um, and some of them can get increased CK even beyond what you normally see in COVID. Um, so you should monitor the CK a bit if they're on baricitinib. Um, so this patient, um, for the kind of summary, basically we usually give it to patients who are either on high-flow oxygen, non-invasive ventilation, or patients on low-flow oxygen up to five litres who look like they're kind of deteriorating or pretty sick. And uh, again, I'm going to move on to another thing which it doesn't ha really have well-formed guidelines yet, and that's... We're giving all these COVID patients these immunosuppressing medications. So do we need to check for chronic infections that, that will um, uh, be exacerbated? Yeah, do we? I think most departments are still kind of forming guidelines around this. But um, currently at the Alfred, we usually... I don't need to say that. Anyway, uh, sorry, a, a hospital that I may or may not work at. <laughs> um, we uh, order hepatitis B and C serology, HIV serology um, and quantifurin gold for TB. And consider stronger loides if they've um, got risk factors from being overseas. Just because some of those infections can recrudesce with immunosuppression, although with you know a very short co course of dexamethasone or baricitinib, it, it is quite rare. All right, so Scott, are there any other MABs that I should know about? Tocilizumab was um, shown to have a small um, improvement in mortality in some early studies at okay. day 28. So tocilizumab of uh, rheumatoid arthritis and GIA fame? Exactly. It's an IL-6 interleukin-6 inhibitor. It dampens that um, immune response. Mm -hmm. um, there is a critical global shortage, though, so we often even use baricitinib instead. 
um, in Australia. Okay. Uh, and just so you get an idea, this is a one-off IV infusion, and sometimes they'd give it a second dose a day later, um, and has side effects including infusion-related hypotension, hepatitis, um, high cholesterol in 20%, and um, can increase the risk of fungal or TB infections. But we don't use this very much anymore, so tocilizumab may be one to keep on just on the back of your kind of... Burner. Burner, toolbox, <laughs> I don't know, whatever metaphor you want to use. All right, so moderate to severe COVID, our treatments are dexamethasone, baricitinib, and then in the back of our toolbox suitcase bag, remdesivir, well, actually that's probably more in the middle of the bag, and tocilizumab is going towards the back of the bag. Yep. So dexamethasone only if they're on oxygen. Yeah, exactly. And baricitinib if they're heading towards high flow. Remdesivir based on a risk and... Risk and benefit analysis. And tocilizumab if you can get it. If you can get it. <laughs> but probably not if they're already on baricitinib. All right. So let's go back to Amy again. So she's now on day eight of her illness. It's moderate to severe and she's hypoxic. If you give her dexamethasone and monitor her. Look in her bloods. She's developed a lymphopenia on her full blood examination. The UEC shows an acute kidney injury and there's mild liver function test arrangements. Four hours later, she develops a respiratory rate of 30 and her oxygen is going south. So 84% on four litres of oxygen. So you start her on high flow and that's your uh, trigger for also commencing her on baricitinib. Remdesivir is, of course, contraindicated by her EGFR less than 30, which I didn't mention, but she had an EGFR less than 30, so remdesivir was contraindicated. And also your ID consultant just doesn't like it. Once she's stable, you go on your tea break and Google PR ivermectin to find out if that's even a thing. Yeah, hopefully not. All right, so Scott, what are the complications of COVID? What are we What are we looking out for here? So we've done this before, but we'll run through really quick. So as things to think about in hospitalised patients with COVID is their symptoms evolve. So uh, bloods, um, you know, lymphopenia is common. Um, secondary infections are quite common. Um, AKI is common. Hepatitis is common. Uh, co-infection, as we mentioned, um, they can have COVID-associated pulmonary aspergillosis. We get a lot of people with aspergillus um, pneumonia who've, who've had COVID recently, um, and that's associated with a poor outcome. That's really interesting, even in those who aren't immunosuppressed. It's much more common in people who are immunosuppressed, but yeah, also in people who aren't. Right. Um, you can actually see it after influenza as well. There you go. All right, tell me about the heart. Um, the heart. So the heart, you can get myocarditis, pericarditis. You can get even a myocardial infarction with all this coagulopathy that we talked about. Mm. Um, and that, I guess, leads into pulmonary embolism. Some cohorts of COVID inpatients showed rates up to 20% of PEs, pulmonary embolus, in mm. patients with COVID. Mm. So don't forget, just hammering that home again, don't forget to, to chart their VTE prophylaxis. Yeah, there's been lots of trials of giving even therapeutic clexane in COVID because they thought it might help, but nothing's really panned out. Don't forget the clexane. Um, stroke is also quite common in COVID, 6% of ICU patients mm. in some studies. Um, and I guess rarer things like secondary syndromes like organising pneumonia is quite rare. So Amy spends three days in the intensive care unit on high flow oxygen and manages to narrowly avoid intubation. Then three more days on the ward on low flow oxygen. Once she starts feeling better, she occupies herself attending Zoom meetings for the COVID Conspiracy Alliance, of which she is a local chapter leader. 
On day eight, she's ready to go home and she's finally worked out that the reason she got so sick was her quercetin deficiency and she'll work to raise awareness of this in the broader community. Despite her bizarre beliefs, you are relieved that you showed her respect as we have during the course of this podcast episode. <laughs> really, we've really modelled that. As, we? yeah. <laughs> so as, as you can see by our derision and irony, um, it's really imp- but but it really is genuinely really important to show show respect and and maintain a good therapeutic relationship as we did not throughout Amy's stay. Yeah, even if people have weird beliefs. So, do you think she'll get long COVID? So, I think long COVID is an emerging area. Um, I'm not an expert in it, and I think there's probably a lot of different subgroups with different things going on. It is a real thing. Um, and I think there's probably groups of people who've, you know, just recovering from really critical illness, people who've got lung scarring, and there's probably people who have a post-viral syndrome. We talked about ACE inhibitors being everywhere from the kidneys to muscle cells to... And uh, ACE2 ACE oh, receptors. Thanks. ACE inhibitors are also <laughs> everywhere. You can get them from Chemist Warehouse. You yep. can get them from... Yeah, but uh, yes, ACE2 ACE um, receptors yep. are everywhere. And so long COVID can affect... Or maybe maybe it's related that long COVID can also affect anywhere. We just yeah, don't really mit- know. mitochondrial or hormone defects, we really don't know yet. So some people have long-term symptoms, including shortness of breath, chest pain, um, lack of smell, fatigue, um, but there's not really any treatments yet. So watch this space. All right. So for those of you who've stuck with us for the last hour and a half, we're at the end. So I think um, <laughs> we will just give a little bit of a bit of a summary of everything that Scott has taught me today and hopefully all of you as well. So so I guess to start with, before your patients are coming in with COVID, when you're looking after other patients uh, during your day-to-day work, always check their vaccination status. Any interaction with a medical pr- professional is a good time to, to introduce that idea and the best vaccine is the first that's available and appropriate for the patient. Yep, they all work. All right, and you were telling us that it's a two-phase disease. Yep, so commonly we've, and this is just typical, but commonly you've got this upper respiratory tract phase where the most important things are isolating and considering whether the patient's a candidate for some of these preventative therapies for severe illness like sotrovimab or budesonide. And then you head into the severe symptom phase, which is characterised more by the host's immune response. Yep. And this is where patients tend to be hospitalised. Oxygen is one of the most important supportive therapies and we need to keep an eye on them because they could crash rapidly. So we try to involve ICU early on, particularly if there's any respiratory distress or they're on more than four litres of oxygen. Yep. Anyone on oxygen gets dexamethasone, considered remdesivir for some people, and baricitinib if they're heading downhill. Some of the complications to look out for are venous thromboembolism, acute kidney injury, secondary infections with bacteria or fungi and clots in other places like myocardial infarction, strokes uh, and also myocarditis. And I think the other big complication to worry about is COVID brain in doctors. So either you're stressed from COVID or you've got your brain fixed on one diagnosis and you miss really obvious stuff or mischarting the patient's usual meds or you know, don't or put them into fluid overload and just remember not to, to do your normal clinical medicine as well and not just kind of go into a panic and turn your brain off when you see COVID patients. Yeah, and if your brain is turned off, where where should you head for some more information? Yeah, so you can go to the Not Fully Up-to-Date up-to-date website um, or you can try some other ones like the Australian Living Evidence Consortium, um, which is pretty good, and your hospital will have a local protocol wherever you are. 
I think one of the most important things though, particularly if you're a junior doctor, is to escalate early. So to your own consultant within your team or to the specialist team in your hospital, whether that's infectious diseases or respiratory. And of course, as we've mentioned a few times, to the intensive care team. So COVID, huge spectrum of disease. It's something that's going to have already touched everyone who's listening to this as it has touched people all around the world. And you're If you haven't already started looking after patients who are positive with COVID, it's very likely that that will be the case soon for most uh, most junior staff, I would imagine, over the next um, the sort of coming months. Yeah, and just to future proof this podcast, obviously there'll be new variants in the future, which maybe. I don't think there's any future proofing this podcast. Well, we might need to take it down by tomorrow. So listen quick. (laughs) (laughs) Listen quick. It might need to change soon, but um, just a little predictor. Did you know? that once they run out of Greek letters for variants of concern, they're going to name them after constellations. No. So, yeah, that's oh. a little little gem in there for you. So in two years' time, you look very clever when you tell your friends about it. And, yeah, make, make sure you definitely check up some other stuff if, the, if it's been a while since this was recorded. All right, great. Thanks, Scott. That was extremely useful for me, and I'll be pretending that I have learned all this off my own back when I teach my interns at work on Monday. Cool. Thanks very much. Bye. Thanks. Bye.